everyone. It's Matt Anderson, and you're listening to the Proximity Process Podcast. This show is an invitation into a growing community. It's a conversation about how systems change actually starts with personal transformation. The change we want to see, it starts with us. Okay, today's episode, this is really a follow-on from the last two. So I hope you've listened to the last two episodes with Corey Best. We cover a lot of ground, but at the center of it, we're talking about Corey's relationship to the Adoption and Safe Families Act, and in particular, termination of parental rights, his experience with TPR. And throughout that episode, he says something that really was intriguing to me, and and I'm sure you too as, as the listener, ASFA has to go. The policy ASFA has to go. And so that's that's left me thinking about what the implications are of, of that. So I wanted to keep this conversation going, and I decided that we would do another episode. And I wanted to have that episode be really kind of diving into the legal implications of ASFA has to go, the moral implications of ASFA and TPR. And what if TPR was no longer on the table? Where would that leave us? So I wanted to talk to somebody who really not only thinks deeply about these questions and these issues, but works on them every single day. So I reached out to um, a friend of mine, and you might be picking up a theme here that guests are often people that are part of my process, that are some of my teachers. And Kathleen Kramer, today's guest, is definitely one of those people. Kathleen is uh, the managing attorney at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. There, she works with a, a large team of attorneys and paralegals parents who have been impacted, social workers, and they're all doing parent defense work day in and day out. And so that's the perspective, the background that she's bringing to this conversation. And before we get into it, I'll just say I really enjoyed this conversation that I had with Kathleen, um, where we really put TPR under the spotlight. And so I think you're going to take a lot away from this. I'm excited to bring you this episode. Let's get right into it. Yeah, I can't wait for this conversation. And I've been thinking about this my whole career and still don't have all the answers, but I'm pretty clear that we're getting this all wrong. (laughs) So I'm excited to talk with you about it. So I um, manage a family defense practice. I've been doing family defense for a long time now, and I've litigated termination of parental rights cases. I've lost termination of parental rights cases. I've litigated termination of parental rights appeals. I've lost termination of parental rights appeals. I have written about the Adoption and Safe Families Act and the harm of termination to parents and children. And I just am constantly searching my conscience to understand how we've gotten to the place where this kind of harm is so normal. Yeah. So let me ask you, so I, I want to just to start here, connect dots between the last two episodes and this conversation. And maybe to do that, Corey says a couple of things. One, ASFA has to go. And he also says that he wants to accept invitation into community and invite other people into community to challenge TPR. Mm-hmm. And so as you listen to those two episodes, just curious, like what are a, one or two things that you were just left with coming out of those conversations? The thing that stood out to me most about both of the episodes is the humanity of Corey and the humanity of his son. 
And the way that our systems have been designed to disregard that humanity, to pretend that ignoring that humanity is a success, is victory. The image, the visual of Corey's son finally opening that birthday card that Corey wrote to his son when he was 10 years old, saying, the love is there, the love is always going to be there. And then Corey's son in his arms, crying, Corey's story is not unusual. It's typical. It's something we do every day in child welfare courtrooms across the country. We stop caring or listening to the stories once we've gotten to our outcome. And so we don't know about these stories because we pretend that they don't exist. That story of Corey and his son sharing the grief over the almost two decades of lost time together hit home for me very viscerally. I hope that it hits home for other folks who have normalized termination of parental rights as a metric of system success. I don't know how you could, but there we have it. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that we talk about on this podcast a lot is the idea of making the invisible visible. One of the things that we make invisible is the experience of parents. More specifically than that, we make invisible the unbreakable bond between parent and child. So termination of parental rights was an attempt to break those bonds between Corey and his son. That moment that that you're describing where Corey opens his birthday card after all these years finally, have that release of emotion, they have that embrace and a cry. That is the bond between father and son that is completely unbreakable that terminating parental rights cannot touch. But we make that completely invisible to ourselves. Me, I make that invisible to myself as a child welfare professional, right? And what happens when we make truth invisible to ourselves, we normalize the things that we do that are harmful. And I I wonder, just because you've been on all sides of these cases of termination of parental rights in terms of winning cases, losing cases, that sort of thing. But I wonder, like, how normal is Corey's experience? Because I think that as people in the system and just general public is that termination of parental rights is reserved for those parents that are doing unthinkable harm to their children. Child safety is at stake here. And so we have to terminate parental rights. What Corey makes me question is, is that more normal than we might think? That is the norm, Matt. And I think we know that's the norm if we look at the reasons that we're terminating parental rights, even in our statutes. Termination of parental rights in most places can be based on a parent's disability, parent's incarceration, a parent's failure to provide material support for their child, even though they're living in poverty themselves a parent's failure to meet the goals that the agency set for them, whether the agency provided meaningful help to them or not. It is extraordinarily rare that we're terminating parental rights because a parent is dangerous to their child. It's never even an allegation in most termination petitions. Say, uh, Let me click into that. It's never an allegation. What is never an allegation? If you could say more there. Well, I mean, most families aren't separated for reasons of abuse, Mm -hmm. right? Most of my clients never have and never would 
dream of physically or sexually abusing their children. So when you get to the point of termination, it's rarely alleged that your parent that you're representing is so abusive that it's dangerous for the child to have a lifelong connection to them. That's Mm -hmm. really not on the table at termination of parental rights in the vast majority of circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I I think we might come back to some of this, Kathleen, but I want to continue to just kind of ground the conversation in Adoption and Safe Families Act passed in 1997. Why did we create this law? And and if you want to connect how termination of parental rights is a function of, of the Adoption and Safe Families Act. Sure. The Adoption and Safe Families Act was passed in 1997, almost unanimously. And the ostensible goal was to end foster care drift, right? There was this idea that there were so many children in the foster care system that we had to do something. These kids were in the foster care system. They were lingering in the foster care system. And there was a sense at the time that they're staying in the foster care system and then being reunified with dangerous parents, right? Like that was the narrative scholars have written extensively about this. I would really highly recommend Dorothy Roberts' work especially what's really depressing to me is um, she actually wrote a a phenomenal history of ASFA in 2001. And the way that anti-Black animus was really fueling a lot of the rhetoric that was going around at the time. But the ideology at the time was certainly that kids are spending too long in foster care. We're working too hard to reunify children with dangerous parents and kids need permanency. So we've got to get them out of this system. Where you'll never hear me argue is that long-term foster care is bad for kids. I agree with that, right? There's no doubt in my mind, but it's really important to look at the solutions. So we were saying in 1997, there are too many kids in foster care, but we never said, why are they there? Why do we have so many kids in foster care? Are we taking too many kids into foster care? In fact, We decided to do the opposite. We lowered the threshold in the Adoption and Safe Families Act for family separation. We created a standard for family separation called the contrary to the welfare standard, which is the idea that you can separate a child from her family anytime it's contrary to her welfare to be in her own home. Could you give an example of that? Well, the contrary to the welfare standard is vague and amorphous, right? And it's led to the kinds of family separations that we see every day in the child welfare system. As you know, most of our separations are due to neglect. So what is neglect? I've been litigating this my whole life. I still don't know. Mm. Because the reality is it's so confused and conflated with poverty and our own judgments of families that it's, it's really hard to isolate what is neglect versus what is truly unsafe for children and policy. And so we see all the time families separated under a contrary to the welfare standard because a mother can't provide adequate housing for her family, adequate supervision. Yeah. With, with those two examples, is it so federal law lowered the standards for family separation on this contrary to, to welfare idea that then gets applied at the state level? So maybe this the state, I don't know, creates its own statutes around how they see welfare, or how they see neglect. But is it also fair to say that this federal law then really gets interpreted at the individual caseworker level or maybe that larger family group decision making team of what is welfare in this case and what do we need to do? So we now have a federal law being applied with lack of real definition and clarity at the case level. 
Yes, and that happens over and over again in the mm -hmm. Adoption Safe Families Act. But another place that it comes up a lot is reasonable efforts. So again, we were seeing so many kids linger in foster care. And instead of saying, why are we separating so many kids? We also didn't ask ourselves, what are we doing to get kids home to their moms and dads? We never asked ourselves that. We said, we're going to just continue being reasonable in our efforts to reunify families. No federal incentives went towards family reunification in the Adoption Safe Families Act. Heavy federal incentives went towards adoption, but there was no analysis happening about why are kids lingering so long in foster care without getting to reunification? Where, where do we sit in allowing families to experience prolonged family separation because we're not providing right. support to families through reasonable efforts? Do you think that the reasonable efforts, I never really thought about it this way, but the reasonable efforts to reunify kids with their parents without any real practice definitions or financial incentives or real teeth to that. The reasonable efforts is then just to argue in court that we made reasonable efforts to reunify. And so that didn't happen. So now adoption is the pathway and termination of parental rights as a function to get us to an adoptive placement. Absolutely. There are a lot of problems with the reasonable efforts standard. Reasonable efforts is undefined, nor do we reward it in any meaningful way. But it is a checkbox to say we did what we need to do and now we can move to the next step which is by design in the Adoption Safe Families Act to forever take a part of family. And, you know, there's maybe some really practical examples of this. One is that we have adoption incentive funds where county government and agencies get an incentive payment after the adoption is completed. We have adoption subsidy payments that pay the adopted parents until their 18th birthday. So everybody's getting paid as a result of the adoption, but there are no incentives for reunification in that same sense, right? So this plays out in very real financial terms. But you also think about it this way is that we have an adoption month that everybody knows, but there's also a reunification month. And in my experience, people don't know which month that is. We celebrate adoptions in the courtroom. Rarely do we see celebrations of reunification. So just everything is really leaning towards adoption is the right thing, the best thing, the, the safe thing. To your point, like the Adoption and Safe Families Act in 1997, were we solving the right problem? Were we asking the right questions? I think we would both say no. Adoption and Safe Families Act comes from this place of too many kids in foster care, languishing in foster care. And we need to deal with that problem. But we didn't ask ourselves the questions, like you're saying, why are kids coming into foster care? How do we stop that from happening? How do we increase reunification? So to take it a little bit more to like a personal place, right? Change starts with us. Why didn't we ask the questions of why are kids coming into foster care? How do we stop that? I think about this all the time because, you know, I'm operating which within a, a context that I find to be profoundly immoral. It's really confusing to me because I also encounter people all the time in my work that I think of as really good people. <laughs> and so I'm constantly struggling with that and thinking about, well, how did we get here? How did we get here? And the really interesting thing about the Adoption Safe Families Act is you can ask people who are there. I've asked people who were there. You can ask Dorothy Roberts. You can ask Marty Guggenheim. You can actually say, what was going on? What were people thinking? Um, because it's hard to understand. 
What did you find out when you asked them? What what was the mindset in the mid nineties? So, and Dorothy Roberts writes really well about this and highly recommend her scholarship to folks if you really want to understand the rhetoric that was being used against Black families, right? So, you know, we had these kind of tropes about Black danger out there in the 1990s. I'll just do a really brief history lesson because I'm still reading and learning a lot because I'm trying to understand how do we do this? How do we get here? Yeah. So, you know, in 1994... Bill Clinton signs crimes bill, which was really a blueprint for mass incarceration in the United States of America. If you look at the rhetoric used to pass that, we had this idea of a super predator, right? A really scary coded black person who was a danger to us all, who had to be, in Hillary Clinton's words, brought to heel. And so then in 1996, Bill Clinton signs the Personal Responsibility Act, which ends welfare as we know it. Well, what character did we invent to end welfare as we know it? The welfare queen, right? Yeah, exactly. Another coded black, scary figure who this time was having child after child and taking the government's money and driving around in a Rolls Royce, right? So we use that figure to justify our policymaking. And then look in 1997, the Adoption Safe Families Act, the way that folks spoke openly about the threat of Black mothers to their own children is chilling. And again, we created a scary Black archetype, the crack mom. We have to do something about the crack mom who cares more about drugs than her own baby. And so that kind of anti-Black ideology really fueled a one, two, three punch to Black families in America through mass incarceration, through the destruction of the social safety net, and through termination of parental rights. It's a one, two, three punch, and you can't miss it if you look for it. So we ha- I think we have to come to a shared history of the policymaking at the time. And then oh, the other thing that was at play at that time were scary stories. You know, it's all about what stories you tell and what stories you believe, right? And so there were really scary stories that folks were propagating about parents in the child welfare system who are dangerous, who are abusive, outlier, extraordinary, anomalous stories being used to drive policy as if they were typical, parents who's, who've murdered children, violent abuse of children, were used to justify the Adoption and Safe Families Act. They weren't true, right? Most parents involved in the child welfare system, as I said, never have nor never would dream of ever physically or sexually abusing their children. But those parents were held up as typical, as the kind of parents we need to protect children from. And so we told ourselves stories about the families we serve in order to justify what we did. Yeah. The stories that we tell, the narratives that we hold shape our mindset, shape our beliefs, our values. Those get represented in our behaviors, our decisions that then shape the world, right? I was in high school in the mid-90s. So I remember that super predator narrative as, as represented by young Black men and that creating fear in me mm-hmm. and then shaping my own view of the world and my own view of Black men. It's still with me today. And I have to examine (laughs) where these beliefs that I have come from and are they true or are they not true? And letting go of these things and becoming a different version of myself 
And so it's it's personal, right? Like this work is very personal. We have to do that self-examination before we get into what do we do with these policies? Can I just, you know, there's another piece of the story that we tell ourselves today and that we told ourselves back then, but we're still telling ourselves that story is, this is good for kids, right? Right. And I think we have to be willing to wonder if we're wrong about that. Mm-hmm. And that's hard because those of us who went, went into child welfare, I mean, I went into child welfare thinking I was going to work with kids. I love kids. I came to understand pretty quickly in my career that if you care about kids, the most important thing you can do is to help their moms and dads. But I care about outcomes for kids like so profoundly. That's why I get out of bed. That's why I do this work. And when I try to talk to folks about ASPA and TPR, I often try to express the other lived experience of ASPA and TPR, which is what I see in the lives of children as they grow up. We assume that taking away forever a child's family, a child's identity, a child's ancestry, a child's community is good for them. We celebrate that, right? And we don't confront, we never confront as a system the harm that that causes to children throughout their lifetimes. It's a harm that ripples across your lifetime. And so like I wrote a column for the imprint, the children of ASFA are now the parents of ASFA because my clients are the children of ASFA. And every day in my practice, I see that harm ripple across the lives of the families that I work with. And so what is a really hard thing to confront is that you created a scheme and you followed along with the scheme because it was best for children. And to ask yourselves and look in the mirror and say, did I actually serve the well-being of children with this approach? And what I'm certain of is that we've caused extraordinary harm to children with this approach. Yeah. One of the biggest shifts in my own process is that realization that happened for me at least a few years ago. I think honestly, Kathleen, though, it happened right at the beginning of my career when I was working with kids aging out of foster care and seeing it was like, oh, when they age out, we know what the data shows, incarceration, homelessness, unemployment, all these kinds of like, wow, this outcome is really bad. This experience of aging out is harmful. So in some ways, I saw the system as harmful from the very beginning, but then I spent many years not seeing the the removal and the separation and the languishing and the bouncing around of foster care, the termination of parental rights. I didn't fully, that wasn't fully visible. Like there was still some invisibility to me of the harm that was being caused throughout that entire experience. Forget the aging out experience, like, cause you can... <laughs> have what is celebrated as a success as adoption and still that child experiences harm. I had to realize that. So the one, two, three punch narrative that you described, that was some of the mindset, some of the thinking that allowed us to see the problem as kids are languishing in foster care. We need to get them into permanent homes, i.e. adoptive homes. And so we get ASFA and as an extension of that, We see termination of parental rights take shape and adoption incentive funds in the in 97 and and moving forward until today. 
So I think honestly, where I, where I want to go next with this conversation, Kathleen, I just want to ask you your position on TPR. And I want to ask you a little bit to, to share a little bit of your process. So, I mean, I've come to understand termination of parental rights as something that we do that's both profoundly immoral and also completely unnecessary. I began my career working with incarcerated women and knew that ASFA was causing harm to them and also knew that there was an irrationality in ASFA's approach to parental incarceration because we put more people in jail, we've kept them there longer, and then we've shrunk the amount of time that families have to reunify. So early in my career, I felt very strongly that we at least needed to do something about parental incarceration. And so I devoted so much advocacy in my career to trying to get an ASFA exception for incarcerated parents to say like, okay, maybe other families need to be terminated at 15 months. But if you're incarcerated and you've never hurt your child, you would never dream of hurting your child and you have a 20 month sentence why should that be a grounds to permanently sever the relationship? And so I would still support an exception for incarcerated parents, but I have also seen so much, and I've been an eyewitness to so much harm more broadly from ASFA. One thing that has really helped me is thinking deeply about grief and loss. I just want to talk for a minute about disenfranchised grief because that was something that really helped me understand how profoundly immoral termination is. So disenfranchised grief is something you're probably familiar with, but I didn't know about it until a few years ago. So I'm going to sh share what it is. Even though I was an eyewitness to it my whole career, I um, didn't really know what it was. And disenfranchised grief is grief that is not socially recognized. And so if your mom dies, Matt, there's going to be a funeral. I'm going to send you cards. I, I, I'm going to call you and say, are you, are you okay? You lost your mom. I'm so sorry you're going through that, right? It's a socially recognized kind of grief. Disenfranchised grief is a loss that is not socially recognized. A lot of us have experienced disenfranchised grief in all sorts of ways. Having a miscarriage is disenfranchised grief. Going through a divorce is disenfranchised grief. Losing a job that you loved and colleagues you got to see every day is disenfranchised grief. Grief that you're experiencing that nobody else acknowledges as grief. It is the loneliest feeling in the world. It is one of the worst things we experience as human beings. And it's what termination of parental rights does to children and to parents. I've sat with parents after they've experienced termination of parental rights. Most people don't, right? Most people in the child welfare field have never sat with a parent one minute after termination, five minutes after termination, an hour after termination. They are eviscerated, and yet their grief is celebrated as necessary for their children to succeed. And so not only is their grief disenfranchised, it is celebrated. We are celebrating the experience that we are asking parents to endure. That understanding of grief and loss really changed 
my lens on this. And then also, you know, spending a lot of time with my clients who are the children of the Adoption Safe Families Act and understanding the loss that they've experienced as a result, who even if they found a wonderful adoptive family, still lost something profound and are grieving that, are mourning that. And again, instead of acknowledging that is a loss that we need to support a child or a child who's becoming an adult in that loss, in that grief, we took away their mom, their dad, their brothers, their sisters, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents, their community, their culture, their ancestry. Not only do we not recognize their right to grieve that, we celebrate again. That was a victory. That was a victory for them on their behalf. So the way that we've made invisible the grief that parents and children experience through termination of parental rights has made it so clear to me that we can't continue on this path. And it's really made me clear that I can't just be advocating to do a little bit less of this. Yeah. A lot a lot running through my mind because I'm having my own memories of experiences of this disenfranchised grief. You and I talked about like the contrarian point of view, right? Part of that is this pain and this grief is in pursuit of something worthy, the safety and well-being of a child. How, how do you handle that? <laughs> how do you handle that contrarian point of view? How do you respond to it? Because people make that argument every day. People get paid on that pain and grief every day. And it's in pursuit of safety and well-being of the child and adoption as the permanency outcome. And so we have to have TPR. And this pain and grief is, I suppose people feel it's acceptable. And I wonder how you handle that. Well, I would say in, in large part, the pain and grief are invisible. We've chosen not to look at them. But there are a couple things I would want to say. One is that what you think is on the other end isn't always there. And so we know we terminate parental rights to kids who we don't have adoptive resources for, right? The legal orphan problem is real. We also see kids placed in adoptive families that are not good for them. We uh, celebrate adoption as a success without any qualification, even though adoptions fail, adoptions dissolve. It's very hard to track broken adoptions because of the phenomenon of giving children a new birth certificate, a new name, a new identity, right? So we kind of ignore the story after mm -hmm. we have our party and close the book on that family. And so there's I no real data on quote unquote failed adoptions, dissolved, no. disrupted adoptions. There's really no data on it. No. Um, just to, 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 you know, make a note there, but yeah, please continue. So there's that, there's that piece that like what we tell ourselves a happy ending and we don't know. And I don't know how curious we are to find out we had our adoption party and we moved on to our next case. And so are we really curious about what is what we celebrated as a success for the child? When you hear stories about adoption as a success, who's telling that story? Whose story is it? What you see over and over again is the adoptee is not the one telling the story. It's the professionals telling the story. It's the person who adopted telling the story. And so it's actually, it's like one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
But then the other thing that I think we haven't grappled with is we have other options. <laughs> there is no reason that we need to take away so much from children to give them a permanent family. So the Adoption Safe Families Act also created this hierarchy where we prioritize adoption as the most permanent outcome for kids. And then we said guardianship is less preferable. You know, and guardianship allows kids to keep their right to their lifelong connection to their own family. It also gives them a permanent caregiver who's committed to them and receives a stipend to care for them, right? And yet we've said that's not as good as adoption. Why have we done that? There's certainly no research to show that's correct, right? There's no evidence that adoption is more permanent than guardianship. In, in fact, Mark Testa's research, he's done terrific work showing guardianship is just as permanent for kids and it's what kids want. Kids want relational permanency. They want those lifelong connections to the people that they care about in their lives. And termination takes away relational permanency to the extent that it severs not only your relationship with your mom and dad, but all the other relationships you might have within your family. So this idea that oh, we had to do adoption because we had to get kids to permanent homes, that's not true. Yeah, I always, I, I always struggled with that. Kathleen, when I was running a foster care and adoption program and talking to foster and adoptive parents about this, and I, I never really had a good answer because I didn't really understand, right? Like from just a, a pure legal perspective is guardianship because a judge can transfer guardianship to a, a relative or a non-relative. Mm-hmm. And then that child can leave custody of the state or the county or what have you and and be and achieve quote unquote legal permanency as as defined under federal law but we prefer adoption because it's more permanent and i never understood what the legal distinction was and i guess what i'm hearing here from you is that there really isn't any i want like why have we convinced ourselves that adoption is more permanent is better than a guardianship arrangement and you know from my perspective as the person running that program one aspect is that it's better for business. There were certainly financial implications, right? There was, like we said, the adoption incentive payments. We would get paid for those adoptions, but not guardianship. And so that's just maybe one way to look at it. But There is some financial bonus for guardianship, but it's not as significant as adoption. Yeah. And there is that kind of sense. I mean, you know, ASFA prioritizes adoption and gives better financial rewards to folks who pursue adoption. But also, you know, there is a sense of finality. We have this kind of illusion that if we just get kids into this adoptive home, it's final. The kids have a permanent sense of who am I, where do I belong? And of course you talk to adoptees and they spend their whole lives asking, who am I, where do I belong, whether they got to adoption or not, right? So there's that idea of finality, that's our narrative. It's not the narrative that adoptees will share with you. I mean, I will acknowledge in guardianship situations, sometimes the parent can come back and petition the court for custody. So in Pennsylvania, it's one of those states where a parent could petition for custody and folks in Pennsylvania have really resisted that and said, oh, nope, that's a disruption of a child's right to finality. And again, to me, the finality is illusory. 
uh, <laughs> kids are going to struggle for the rest of their lives after we took everything away from them. We have this idea that even if we accept it was best for this child to be with this caregiver at age two, right? What if at age 12, this kid could go home to mom or dad and wants to? Do we care about that? Our scheme right now that prefers adoption says, nope, we don't care about that. That kid needs permanency. That kid needs finality. Whether that kid misses or wants to be with their mom is of no consequence. They're in a permanent family that's been erased. And guardianship says, maybe sometimes kids should go back to their parents. Um, maybe we should leave that door open. Maybe maybe parents should be able to petition and say, hey, I, I can provide care for my child and it is in her best interest to be with me. It, yeah, you remind me of a story. So we had a lifelong post-adoption program. And so we would work with people, adoptees, till the day they died. And so I remember that the team that did that work told me the story one time of a man just walked into the office one day, knew that we had this program and said, I'd like to meet with these folks that do this work. And he sat down with one of our post-adoption um, specialists and he, he said to her, I'm 80 years old. I'm going to die soon. And I need to find my people. I need to know where I came from. And so they got to work with him. And at 80 years old, they were able to unite him with his family. Before he died, he was able to answer all those questions that he'd had for 80 years. And I think when we center the adoptive parents and the, the system, when we're in service of the system, not people, we don't know that man's story the way that we have to. And when we do center that narrative, it gives us a completely different perspective on what is safety, what is well-being, what is permanency. And it, and it puts a lot of our practices and our policies into question. And we have to do this self-examination work of where where do we go from here? Once we start to see these things and feel these things and experience these things, where is that going to take us? And so maybe to, to move this conversation in that direction, let's just imagine like the what if, right? So Kathleen, you're saying your process has gotten you to this place of TPR is immoral. And it's not just a little less of it. It's something drastically different. And so like, let's just say TPR is not available to us, that what if question. Just as you sit here today, what does that open up in, in your view? What does that create? I honestly think it would create an urgency to keep families together mm -hmm. and to reunify families mm -hmm. and to make meaningful efforts at reunifying families. I mean, I cannot tell you how often I feel in my casework that people are just kicking up their feet and waiting for 15 months to pass so they can file their TPR petition, right? We would have to take efforts to keep families together much more seriously. And we would have a future in which we honored children's need to belong to their own families. It would be our beacon. It would be our guiding light. It would be what drove our work every day. Yeah. And I just think that question, that what if question, what if TPR was no longer available to us? So I think about it this way, the idea of letting go. So when we let go of the constraints, letting go of TPR, let's go of a constraint that's holding us back from freedom. I just think that's an exercise maybe that we can just leave people with here of what if TPR didn't exist? Would kids be more or less safe? 
would we be impacting well-being in a different way? So anyway, I want to I want to leave people with that, but I want to ask you a couple questions about more kind of practicality side of things. I have two questions about that. So you said that not just a little less TPR, but something dramatically different or significant. So let's just take it to the state level because when you and I were talking the other day, you were like, yeah, there are things that we could do at the federal level of TPR and at the state level of TPR. So let's just look at it from the state perspective. What is available? What options do exist to change TPR statute? I think there are a couple things that we could do at the state level that would require a lot of political will that I've honestly never seen before. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd be thrilled to to see that political will develop. So the Adoption Safe Families Act didn't tell states what to put in their TPR statutes. It lets states decide what are the grounds for termination of parental rights. As a result, the states put all sorts of challenges that parents experience as grounds for uh, termination of parental rights. Like, so for instance, disability, a parent's Mm. intellectual or physical disability is a ground for termination of parental rights in Pennsylvania, where I sit. It's just the parent's inability to provide care, right? Legislatures could say, wait, what? We're taking away a child from her mom forever? That child can't even know her mom because her mom is disabled? That, again, I keep feeling this kind of discordance and that strikes me as fundamentally immoral and yet it's in state statutes all over the place. Parental incarceration is another thing that is in state statutes all over the place. States could dramatically overhaul their termination statutes and say, if we think termination is justified at at all, it's because a parent is dangerous to a child, right? That lifelong connection to the parent is dangerous to the child. And so every single state in America could overhaul their TPR statute to get rid of grounds for TPR that are profoundly immoral. They could do that. Every state could also look at their practices around guardianship versus adoption. Um, A lot, Just so you know, ASPA doesn't require this, but a lot of states won't do guardianships under a lot of circumstances, including if the child is under 12. And so that's a state decision. States could say, nope, we're going to open up guardianship. We're going to presume it's best. Every state could define reasonable efforts and fund reasonable efforts. Not much exists in state law about what is reasonable efforts to prevent family separation or to reunify families, states could start defining that and start creating uh, accountability mechanisms to make sure that families are getting reasonable efforts. So states could decide to do things Mm. like that too. Yeah. There's lots of interesting opportunities in all of what you just said. A lot of us are like, well, this is a difficult conversation to have because I don't know where to go with it. I don't know what's next. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I think what this conversation is doing is trying to do two things. One, let's try to make the invisible visible. Let's try to examine our own feelings and perspectives and mindsets on this issue of termination of parental rights. Let's start there because I think that's the most important thing. And then we can move to the practical of what do we do? And there's lots of things that we can do as you're just laying out. And I wonder if there are examples. And so you shared something with me the other day around the constitutionality of terminating parental rights. And there's some work happening around that. So I wonder if if you could share a little bit about, about that. 
Yeah, I think there's a really interesting legal question here about whether termination of parental rights could ever pass constitutional muster. So the Constitution for through the 14th Amendment recognizes that we all have a liberty interest in our own family. And there's some case law that says that liberty interest is, is for parents, their parents' right to, to care for and raise their own children, but that children themselves might have a liberty interest in a lifelong relationship to their own family. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a government that is interfering with somebody's constitutional interests, in general, the government has to use it sparingly and they have to have a really compelling reason to do it. Sparingly could not ever describe our approach to termination. 50,000 terminations happen every year in America. Five, oh, 50,000. So we are not sparing in our use of termination of parental rights. There have been courts that have said, you have to use the least restrictive alternative that you have before you go to something as dramatic, as restrictive, as invasive, as harmful, as something like termination of parental rights. There are scholars who are really bringing an important and robust constitutional analysis to this that really is not well litigated in our state courts and has never been decided by our our United States Supreme Court. But it's an important question. If guardianship is available to us, if custody to a relative is available to us, if reunification is available to us, how could termination of parental rights be the least restrictive alternative? I highly recommend a a recent law review article written by Vivek Sankran and Christopher Church. It's called The Ties That Bind Us that really dig into a constitutional analysis here because I think they're right. I think what we're doing is not only immoral, but is also unconstitutional. And um, I really look forward to seeing whether they can make that case in court. Yeah, no, thank you for all of that. And I think that, so you just mentioned Vivek, who you may add to this, but has a a, a law clinic at the University of Michigan Law School. I I believe that's right. So correct me if I'm wrong there, Kathleen. But is, is he, I think you mentioned that he's considering or pursuing something within Michigan around some of what you just laid out in terms of the constitutionality of, of TPR. Yes, uh, there is an amicus. He's, he's litigating a case right now as we speak in front of the Michigan Supreme Court challenging um, termination and asking whether it is the least restrictive alternative. So review was granted on that recently and we'll see how it plays out. It's hard to get state Supreme Courts to engage with child welfare, although we have a fabulous state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania who's been really interested in it lately. Um, But it's hard to get courts to agree to take a case. So the, the fact that the Michigan Supreme Court agreed to take this case and to consider this constitutional issue is really important. And why? I'm curious, why do you think that is, that it's difficult to get a court to take these cases? There is a sense that this is settled law. You know, the Adoption Safe Families Act has been with us for, you know, 25 years now. And so there's a sense like this is settled law. Why would we revisit this? There's also, I think, a general kind of lack of enthusiasm for child welfare cases among courts. I mean, Marty Guggenheim, one of my 
heroes always says this is the most important civil rights work there is in America right now, mm. family defense work. And yet, you know, it really is not seen as such, but by most folks, including most appellate courts. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we do a, a follow-up when the time is right to see what's, mm-hmm. what's happening. It's interesting. Okay. Well, wonderful to be able to have this conversation with you. Perhaps this is not an end to it, but there's a continuation to it. But before we wrap, Kathleen, there's always two questions at the end that I ask people, what does proximity mean to you? And what, if any, advice you might have for me as I continue in my process? So I'd love to ask you those two questions. Let's start with proximity. I love this question, Matt, and I'm going to try to be brief in my answer, but I've been thinking about this question a lot since you started asking it, because in some sense, the typical child welfare caseworker appears to be pretty proximate to my clients, right? They're flushing their toilets, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, Closeness is not in question. (laughs) As a definition of proximity. Right. And so, you know, and, and, you know, the typical child welfare caseworker just spends a lot more time with parents because they're doing home visits all the time. Like the level of like surveillance that comes with being a child welfare worker is you're with kids and parents all the time. And yet there is a giant proximity disconnect happening there. And so... One thing I've been thinking about a lot is the concept of holding space. So when somebody is suffering, when someone is grieving, as children and parents in the child welfare system certainly are, holding space means allowing them to be the narrators of their own lives, allowing them to make decisions about their own lives, supporting them as they process the meaning of what's happening to them. Holding space is one of the most holy and beautiful things we can do for each other as human beings. It's also one of the hardest uh, because we all want to get in there and offer advice and say, you wouldn't be so upset about that loss in your life, Matt, if you just went for a walk every day, you'd feel so much better, right? And I would be trying to solve that problem for you. That's the opposite of holding space. Holding space is allowing someone's suffering and pain to exist and allowing them to make meaning of it. And so the child welfare system is built on this ideology of like saviorism, heroism. I myself have been victim to that, you know, that idea of myself as the hero or the savior of somebody else. That's wrong. (laughs) We have to hold space for people who are suffering. And so to me, True proximity means holding space. You have me thinking about the last two conversations with Corey and something that that he says often that maybe connects here. But he talks about pulling from memory, that when the judge terminated his rights, she was pulling from memory of what she has come to believe about who a parent like Corey in, in orange jumpsuits, who these parents are. So pulling from memory, not asking questions about who are you? Where do you come from? What do you believe? What do you love? Who are your, who's your family? Really truly getting, holding space is to know somebody as much as you can, not pulling from memory. If you are, as the caseworker, flushing a parent's toilet, checking the refrigerator to see how much food is in there, you know, all the things that we do during our investigation and consideration of reunification, 
for doing all those things, but not holding space for that disenfranchised grief on the other side of a TPR, that's not proximity. That's not proximity. Yeah. Yeah. Lots to leave us with there, Kathleen. Any, any advice you have for me as I go forward? I, I just admire what you're doing so, so much. <laughs> um, and so, and I also am part of my own professional and personal development is to stop offering advice. And I just want to say what a journey you're on and what a pleasure it is to watch you on your journey because you're the hero of your own life. And who am I to tell you what to do? Yeah, fair enough. I might have to stop asking that question <laughs> is what you're know. leaving me with. So. <laughs> no, I and, mean, uh, I, you know, it's like I said, it's where I am in my own growth process and still working on it every day, I, especially as a mom of a teenager. You always want to be like, just do this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you, she's the hero of her own life. And I, you know, I, I can't wait to see what she's able to accomplish. And it can be so disempowering. To, to be offering advice. That said, I'm very grateful for folks who have offered me advice throughout my life mm-hmm. when I needed it. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wouldn't stop asking. No, that's that's good. That's good. There's I think what underlies that is curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Just it's an it's that question for me is almost like my own personal accountability to remain in curiosity about who I am mm-hmm. and how I'm showing up. So so yeah, anyway, if I had we, one universal piece of advice for everybody. You and yeah. all our listeners is stay curious. Exactly. Yeah. I, th- I think that's it. As long as we remain curious, we're going to keep asking the what if questions, right? Mm-hmm. That's got to be part of it. So good stuff, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. It was really fun. All right. So before we uh, wrap up this episode, of course, I just want to say a special thank you to Kathleen for being a guest, for having the conversation. And you are invited as the listener to our Proximity Podcast Club that meets every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. So the Monday after this episode coming out, Kathleen, no doubt, will be with us. And so we'll pick up this conversation with her there. So I hope you'll join. All you have to do is go into the show notes of of the episode, um, find my LinkedIn page, send me a message, and I will send you the link. And before we close out... Shout out to our production team. Thank you to Michael Tex Osborne, 14th Street Studios, Evan Scherer for his production support, and Christian Heigis for original music. That's it. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.